there was reason for great celebration in the church. The youth pastor and his beautiful wife announced they were pregnant and going to have their first child. Everyone was excited for this young couple because they had become like a son and a daughter to the entire church. The birth of this child was all people could talk about for months. And the church was alive with anticipation out of love for this couple. But then, unexpectedly, deep into the pregnancy, this woman miscarried and they lost the baby. And the church was crushed. They were crushed out of disappointment for this couple. They had, this couple had a strong faith, and although disappointed, they did not suffer for long. They never doubted God's goodness or care for them. They became pregnant just a few months later, and once again, everyone was excited about the prospect of this couple having their own children, having parented all these teenagers for years. It was time to have their own family. But again, months into their pregnancy, they miscarried and, and lost the baby. And everyone felt sick for this couple. People in the church actually avoided them because they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what they could do for this hurting couple. You know, they hurt for them and winced at the thought of losing two children back to back. But the, the couple's faith remained strong, even though there was a tear in each one of their hearts. So they got tested and made sure there was nothing physically wrong with them that they were able to carry a baby to term, and the, everything checked out perfectly normal, totally healthy, which was a relief to both of them. And yet, this couple, the youth pastor and his wife, would suffer two more miscarriages, four in all. And they were sad and disappointed. They didn't understand how this happened, or what good could come out of this pain. What good could come out of a loss like this? What, what benefit could it possibly serve? But they held on to their faith. They held on through the pain and through their tears. And they were going to continue to believe that God was great and God was good. That God still loved them and only had their best interest at heart. They decided in their heart they were going to believe that to be true. They chose to believe what God said in his word. That he would never leave them or forsake them no matter what. No matter what circumstances looked like, they were going to believe God. They chose to believe God's word as truth and let God's word interpret their circumstances, not the other way around. They weren't going to let their personal experience become their personal truth. Their truth about God, about themselves, and about God's purposes and plans for the, His children. Well, this is the third week of our new study of Davy, David and Goliath. This well-known, well-worn passage from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And if you remember, the first week of our study, we learned that David's simple obedience and willingness to serve, to say yes to seemingly insignificant acts of service, led to great opportunity. That God uses small acts of service to set us up for something powerful, Something that has great impact on those we serve and others. We're living it out right now down at the Fairfield Beach. God's using our small acts of service for great impact, for great kingdom gain. It's awesome to see it played out in the life of our church. Then last week we learned that David got his confidence by, by remembering God's deliverance 
in the past. Remembering that God had delivered him from a lion and a bear. That God's faithfulness to deliver us in the past gives us complete confidence that he will deliver us, no matter what comes, in the future. And today, today we finally get to the primary action of this story of David and Goliath, where David actually slays the, the Philistine champion, Goliath. Slays him with a sling and a stone. A shepherd's weapon of choice. And speaking of weapons, there's a lot of weapon talk in this passage. Have you noticed? Before we read about the actual one-on-one account of David taking down Goliath, I want us to actually go back to an, an early portion of this scripture, of this passage. One we've read already a couple of weeks ago. Because I want to go back to the first few verses where we're introduced to Goliath. And we meet him, and, and the author describes both the Philistine champion and his weapons. So if you would, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. 1 Samuel 17, and we'll reread this short paragraph, verses 4 through 7. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed over 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. This passage, it goes into great detail to describe Goliath as this menacing fighting machine, the the Philistine champion. Did you notice anything missing from this description? It includes the details of Goliath's size, his protective armor, how much it weighs, the make and size of his javelin and spear, even down to the weight of his oversized spear's iron point. But again, I ask you, did you notice anything missing from this account? I only saw it recently myself. But there's something conspicuously absent in this description of the Philistine giant. So look again. I want you to see it. There's no mention of his sword. There's no mention of Goliath's sword. And this can't be an oversight. The details of Goliath's other weapons are included down to their size, weight, and construction material. And the rest of the story is loaded with references. Loaded with references and details about the weapons used. Specifically the use of a sword. How come no mention of Goliath's sword when we're introduced to him here? When we're introduced to him here? The sword is the primary offensive weapon of every warrior, of all fighting men of this era. And yet this detailed description makes no mention of it. Well, one explanation might be that this weapon was hidden on Goliath's body. Or or maybe he didn't have it in his possession when when he battled the shepherd boy. That's possible. But I'll need to direct you a little bit later in the story to verse 45. David has arrived at the front lines. He's heard the taunts and the, the defiance of Goliath. He's volunteered to fight him. He's even tried on some of King Saul's armor. It, it proved to be too cumbersome. And so David opts for his weapons of choice. His shepherd's staff and his sling. And he picks up five smooth stones from a nearby stream. So we join the action when this Philistine giant and David are moving towards one another in this fight to the death. 
So we'll begin reading in verse 45, and we'll read the verses, these next three verses, just one at a time. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. David says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. What is he doing? You know what he's doing? He's watching the giant come right at him. And he's just calling out what he sees from left to right. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin on your back. This giant had a sword on him. David confirms it because he calls it out as he watches the giant come at him. And he says, but I come, at, I come at you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. David says, your confidence is in your weapons. My confidence is in my God. My confidence is in the Lord. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. So David boldly declares this sure victory over the enemy right to his face, and what will, even down to what will be done to the bodies of his losing army. But I find one claim particularly bold. I will strike you down and cut off your head, he says. Cut off his head? With what? How's he going to do that? I remind you, the only thing in David's hands, right, is a stick and a leather pouch. And you don't usually make these bold challenges basing it on something you don't already have in your possession. And yet David says, I'm going to cut off your head. All the time, he's holding a stick and a leather pouch with a couple of stones in his pocket. What was David thinking? What did David know? Verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword and not by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. He says it's not by sword and it's not by spear. The battle is the Lord's. David knows that victory is not dependent on the quality of your weapons. It's dependent on your faith in the Lord. And he knows it's now showtime. As Goliath walks towards him, he moves towards him, towards the giant. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down in the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. One shot. That's all it took. One shot. David took the, down the giant with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, Goliath goes down. You know, we love to teach this truth to our children. In fact, we have a little song to teach them to sing about David defeating the giant with just a sling and a stone. It's a sweet little sing-song chorus about a nice, sanitized fight to the death. Right? You ever notice that? Here's the funny part. When we tell this story, we usually end the story right here. Right at this point. Oh, he took him down with a sling and a stone, and we stop. Right? To keep it kid-friendly. But this ain't VBS. So we're going to continue reading. Verse 51. David ran and stood over the giant. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. You can see why we don't include that part of the story in VBS, right? 
David runs up to the fallen giant, pulls out Goliath's sword, runs him through, and cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword. And it only gets better. I want you to skip down now to verse 57. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner, who was the Israelite army commander, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and with David still holding the Philistine's head. I mean, get this. David stands before King Saul, and he's still holding Goliath's severed head. Why is David carrying around this severed head of the enemy? Think about it. I can think of three reasons. Number one is it's a trophy. I mean, it's a grisly, gruesome trophy, but it, it is a trophy. It is a trophy of the victor's win over the enemy. It's proof positive. He won, right? This guy lost. Second, second, yeah, it's rather obvious, but you know what? That's what he did. Second reason he's carrying around the severed head of the enemy. The promised reward to the victor. Do you remember? What better evidence of you successfully killing the enemy and therefore rightfully earning the promised reward than having possession of the enemy's bloody head in your hand when you present it to the king? Do you remember the reward? Verse 25. The king promises great wealth and no taxes and the hand of the king's daughter in marriage to the one who slays the giant. You know what David's thinking, right? He's thinking, King Saul, time to settle up. Here's Goliath's head. So when do I get to meet your daughter, right? That's what he's thinking. So not only is it a trophy, not only is it, is it collateral for getting the reward promised to him, but there's a third reason. You just got to remember, David's 15 or 16, right? How awesome is it to have this severed head in your possession? He's got to be thinking, this makes me look so cool, right? You got to think like a 15-year-old boy. This is awesome stuff. He's like, the girls will love it, right? It's a trophy. It's assurance for his reward. And the truth is, he, he thinks it's awesome. It makes him feel awesome and powerful. Back to verse 51. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, and they pursued, pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn all along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. So Goliath goes down after being hit in the, right between the eyes, and David finishes him off, and the, Philistine run, the Philistines run. They run home. They run west towards home. That's where they're headed. They want to they evade the advancing Israelite army. Well, the Israelite army pursues them, overtakes many of them, and then they return to plunder the enemy camp that's right there at the battle lines in the valley of Elah. And David is not done with Goliath's head. He actually brings it to Jerusalem, and he puts it on a post outside the city gate as a warning, as a warning to the Jebusites who currently live in the city of Jerusalem, another enemy clan that will clash with the Israelites over control of this great city a little bit later. And we're told that David takes Goliath's weapons, his sword and spear and javelin, and he puts them in his own tent as plunder. 
as spoils of his victory over the giant. The celebration of victory is very great. And there literally is dancing in the streets by the Israelites over David, their new national hero. He is loved and adored by all of Israel, except one, except King Saul. Saul's jealousy of David's popularity drives him crazy, drives him mad with envy. He he attempts to kill David on several of occasions. In fact, for all the years up to his death, Saul is consumed with trying to kill David. So David spends most of his time during the next several years on the run, hiding out, trying to, to avoid an escape from Saul's relentless pursuit of him. At one point... Several years after this victory over Goliath, David, the fugitive, is exhausted and alone. He's perhaps at his lowest point of his life. And he seeks refuge in a city that serves as the center for worship for Israel at the time. The town's called Nob. The tabernacle is there, as well as the high priest and 85 other priests. So the tabernacle, the place where they worship, is located in the city. David goes there, desperate tired, exhausted, seeking refuge. David, in what may be his darkest hour, approaches the high priest in the holy place of the tabernacle, the holy place of this church or temple of sorts, and he goes there for some food and a weapon. He's hungry, he's exhausted, he's defenseless, he's desperate. He fears for his life and he's never, he's never been in greater danger. We pick up the action a couple of years later when in this, in this altercation in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 8. 1 Samuel 21, verse 8. Several years later, after defeating Goliath, he's on the run, ends up in the holy place of the tabernacle, and he's there to meet with the high priest asking for some food and for a weapon. We pick up the action in verse 8, 21.8. David asks, uh, asked Ahimelech, the high priest, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no other sword here but that one. And David says, ah. There's none like it. Give it to me. The sword of Goliath, the same sword, the one David put in his tent as spoils of his victory years ago, is now in the holy place of the tabernacle where the, where the Israelites worship. Because sometime after taking it into his tent, David dedicated this very sword to the Lord as a symbol, as a testimony of Israel's deliverance from the hand of the Philistines. A reminder that the battle is indeed the Lord's. And here it is, Goliath's sword, counted among the most holy symbols of God's protection and provision of his people. In the holy place of the tabernacle, 30 miles away from the valley of Elah, where this battle originally took place. David, with no other weapon to defend himself, he takes it. And it becomes his personal sword for the rest of his life. It is the weapon he win, that wins him countless battles for the Israelites over the next 40 years as Israel's greatest warrior and Israel's greatest king. Goliath's sword becomes David's personal sword for the rest of his life. I want you to think about it. 
this sword, the thing that once threatened to destroy David, became his greatest weapon. That's awesome. I'm going to say it again. The thing that once threatened to destroy David became his greatest weapon. That is an awesome truth for you and me today. That's our takeaway. That's in there. And you know what it means for us? It means the very thing that threatens to destroy you will become your greatest weapon. Because the battle is the Lord's. He can take your battle. He can take your struggle. He can take your overwhelming, overwhelming circumstance, the one that threatens to destroy you, and he will make it your greatest weapon, your greatest strength. Because our God is awesome. And he works everything together for good for those that love him. The thing that threatens to destroy you becomes your testimony of God's provision, of God's protection, of God's deliverance, of God's power, of God's victory. That's awesome. The thing that threatened to destroy you becomes your greatest weapon. Hey, you know, that sword that Goliath was carrying that was never mentioned in that early account when, they, when we were introduced to the, to, the, uh, to the enemy, it was not mentioned in Goliath's account. You know why? Because if you take a step back and you view this account from history, that sword wasn't Goliath's sword. Goliath was holding David's sword. See, Goliath had possession of the sword for a time, but I'll remind you that while in Goliath's possession, that sword never left its sheath. But you put that sword in David's hands. It was the sword that cut off the head of the enemy. It was the sword that was dedicated to God. It was the sword that became the, the, the holy symbol of God's protection and provision. And it was the sword that, that carried David to victory for 40 years during his reign as Israel's king. That was David's sword. That wasn't Goliath's sword. He just carried it for a time. History correctly identifies that weapon as David's sword, his greatest weapon. The thing that threatened to destroy him ended up being his greatest weapon. It's awesome. That's our God. That's what he does. He takes our, the thing that threatens to destroy us and makes it our strength, makes it our weapon of choice. Hey, you know that, that couple I was telling you about? The youth pastor and his wife? Well, eventually... Eventually, they gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. And a couple years after that, a healthy baby boy. And these children were the light of their lives. And they moved. They moved to, a, to accommodate this growing family. And it was these kids who, who really made the inroads into the new neighbors and, and really kind of paved the way for friendships for the entire family. In fact, I will tell you, it was my, it was my three-year-old daughter, Kate, who really paved the way for Margie and I. It was so awesome because she made friends with a little girl next door, about Kate's age, and they quickly became best friends. And during this time, Margie and I were becoming friends with Anne and John, her parents. And John was a really good guy. He was a sweetheart guy, quiet and timid. I like it because he let me talk and he just listened. He was great. <laughs> Anne was another story. I'm going to be kind, but Anne was an angry, bitter woman. Anne was cold and critical and harsh and mad at the world. And I'm being kind. I was afraid of her, really. But God bless my wife, who was patient and gentle, and she quietly endured Anne's surly demeanor. And then one afternoon, 
while the girls were playing in the yard and Margie and Anne were sitting there talking, Margie just happened to say, man, we're so thankful for our daughter. We are so blessed to have her. She's really, she's really our miracle baby after four miscarriages and everything. And Anne started to cry. In fact, Anne started to weep and sob out of control. This is a woman who does not cry. And she finally gathered herself together and she looks at my wife and she says, finally, finally, someone who understands me, someone who understands my pain. I've had eight miscarriages and no one understands that kind of pain. No one except you do. You get it. You understand me. And my wife and I, in a moment, understood our pain, the purpose and reason for our pain. Because the truth is, everything changed that day. Chains fell off that day. Anne's heart opened up as Margie shared with her about a God who loves her, about, about a God who only has his best interest for her, only the, the God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, the God who says, I was with you, I am with you in your pain. And Anne changed. It was miraculous to watch. And John, he trusted Christ too. And Candace and Sean, the neighbors, Candace trusted Christ. The truth is, the entire neighborhood opened up to us and showed us extreme favor. You know why? They saw the miraculous power of God change Anne in a way that was undeniable. You know what God did? You realize that God took the thing that almost destroyed us and made us our greatest weapon, made it our greatest witnessing tool, made it our platform for sharing the gospel. Because our God is awesome. And he works everything together for good for those that love him. He's that kind of God. And our pain became a testimony of his goodness, of his grace, of his power, of his victory. And not only saved us, but it, it led to the salvation of our neighbors. That's the kind of God we serve. He's awesome. And he's great. And he works out your pain and mine. The thing that threatens to destroy you to be your greatest weapon. Because the battle is the Lord's. I'd ask you to stand with me for the benediction. And before we do, I'm going to remind you that we have people who would be glad to pray for you. You might be battling something right now. You might be fearful or anxious or angry or in pain or worried. And you don't know how the Lord's going to, you don't know how he's going to do it. I'm here to tell you, I'm living proof. He will take that which threatens you. He will take that pain you have, and he will turn it into your strength. He will turn it into something awesome for his purposes, if you'll let him. If you'll recognize the battle is the Lord's. And he will never leave you or forsake you. And he only has your best interest at heart. So if you're battling something right now, I would ask you, after we close here, you come forward, we'll pray for you. We'll pray that God does something in you that changes your, the thing that threatens to destroy you, but makes it your greatest weapon. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, that's our prayer. You are an awesome God who can do more than we can ask or imagine. You are the God who takes our pain and our trial, the thing that almost overwhelms us, almost takes us out, and you use it. You use it to become a weapon, a strength, a, a platform for the gospel and your goodness and your grace. That's awesome. Only you could do something like that. So we just pray, God, with, 
Would you use us? Would you give us hearts and attitudes that would trust you? That there is purpose and reason in our pain, in our trial, in, in that which we battle against. And the, and the reason is to glorify you and show your goodness, show your grace, show your victory over the enemy and to a world that's watching. That's our prayer, God. Strengthen us to believe and trust you. And may you, may you take which has, that which has threatened us and make it our greatest, our greatest strength, our greatest weapon. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let me close with this. Let me give you the benediction. Right out of Romans 8, it's awesome. It says this. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.